If you could find your seats, we're going to get started. Welcome, everybody. It's great to be together. And if you are a guest with us, um, glad you're here. My name is Paul Buckley. I'm the lead pastor here at King of Grace Church. And we have had a wonderful week uh, with our Vacation Bible School and our outreaches. And I'm sure you've noticed our brand new chairs. Uh, isn't that great? have a, a full room of chairs. Nice, comfortable chairs. Hopefully not too comfortable. But... Uh, Wonderful to enjoy the blessing of God as a church. And God, I was praying this morning for our time and just thinking about the things that the Lord's been doing in and through our church uh, and just reviewing uh, 10 years of His kindness. We are actually approaching our 10th year anniversary this fall, and we hope in September to, to have some time to celebrate and uh, um, some of us have been here since the beginning, uh, and we know just the stories of God's grace. God's been kind to us uh, in providing so many things. Uh, most of all, uh, actually after the provision of His Son and all that comes with Christ, uh, just the grace of God in and through you guys uh, is such a blessing to watch Him at work and to watch His provision. So as I prayed this morning, I was just thinking about that, and I was just praying for uh, the preaching of His Word, the sharing of His Word today. Because that's how God works. God imparts life through His Word. He builds His church through His Word. And, and as He affects our lives, as He speaks to us and leads us and calls us together and directs us, we see His grace at work. And we see all the things around us that we see. Things like chairs, things like a vacation Bible school, things like people whose lives uh, have been and are being transformed by the good news. So I just want to draw our attention to that reality, that the grace we see that we're glad for, the things we see, the ways we see God at work flow from His Word going forth. And so it's so important for us as, a, as His people to gather together and hear from Him because we experience life and grace and fruit through His Word. So we'll be looking this morning at His Word in the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. We are in this series. We're coming uh, to a close in this wonderful series, in this wonderful letter of, uh, to the Philippians. And there's just so many wonderful, glorious truths here. So we're going to look at verses 8 and 9 this morning. But let's pray and ask God to speak to us. Ask God to impart life. Ask God to work and change our lives through His Word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the life that comes. We thank You, God, that You are a speaking God, that You speak to us, that You spoke and the universe was created. You've spoken through Your Son and there's recreation. And You speak through to Your people through Your Word and You create life and You change our lives and You Transform us individually and as a church and as your people more and more into the image of Christ. And you cause blessings to flow from your word. So we thank you for your life-giving, living word. And we ask you this morning, Lord, would you speak? Would you use me to speak, to serve you? May you give us ears to listen to you. May you have your way with us. 
and bring life and truth, blessing and glory to your name, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Paul is finishing up this letter to his dear friends. And in these paragraphs at the end here, he is summing up and giving some closing instructions and exhortations. And he says in verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Philippians 4, 8 and 9. A 1998 study by the National Institute of Mental Health found that one in every eight American, Americans age 18 to 54 suffers from an anxiety disorder. One in every eight. That's over 19 million people. This includes things like panic disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety of different types, and phobias of different types. Women suffer from anxiety and stress almost twice as much as men. They are the mo- anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in America, surpassing even depression. It's the most common mental health issue for seniors over 65, and it costs the U.S. over $46 billion a year. And I would submit that we have all experienced anxiety at one point or another. Some of us perhaps experience anxiety in a way that would be classified as an anxiety disorder. But many of us, if not that, experience anxiety as a constant low-grade anxiety that at times characterizes our lives. Maybe it's just the constant anxiety of wondering how you're going to pay the bills this month. Maybe it's worry over the state of your children. Maybe it's worry over your future, your education. Maybe it's worry over the economy. Maybe it's worry over the future of our country. There's all sorts of things that may tempt us. And side note here, we live in a world, we live in the information age, a world inundated with information, inundated with stories. There are billions of stories and sound bites out there all competing for our attention. And those who are good at their craft of communication understand that mundane and quiet stories are never heard amidst the roar of the internet engine, of the media engine. So they seek to gain an edge by playing to this tendency towards anxiety and worry. You see, if Henny Penny says the sky is falling, people pay attention to Henny Penny. So we live in this age full of headlines that give us reason for anxiety. Listen to this montage taken from a 
well-known media personality who assembled this. Just listen. These are headlines on the evening news that you could hear in any given week. I'll try to put on my evening news newscaster voice here. Could the biggest science project ever lead to the end of the world? The massive gas line ruptures, could it happen in your neighborhood? Are there terrorist cells in your neighborhood? The flip-flop is the new sneaker, but behind this sandal lurks serious danger. It's not only lack of sleep that could kill you, it's sleeping too much. What about the water that comes out of your faucet? Did you know there could be stuff in there that could harm or even kill your kids? Are your kids brainwashed? I'll tell you who is taking cues from the Nazis. Anarchy, chaos, and cannibalism. Gosh, we've got to wake up soon, or we're going to wake up dead. These are all headlines from the news. It's no wonder, given these sort of things and our predisposition as well, that we struggle with anxiety. And some of us struggle regularly. All of us, I would say, at some point struggle in some way with anxiety. And to us, God comes with His Word to rescue us. In Philippians 4, 8 and 9. Here in this verse, Paul talks about how we may experience peace. If you look at the verse, you'll see in verse 9 at the end, he says, and the God of peace will be with you. This section of Scripture, verses 8 and 9, Paul is giving us pathways to peace. Now, earlier last week we learned about verses 4 through 7 and this call of God to to pursue our joy, to pursue our joy in the Lord in the fact that He is near, to pursue our joy in, through prayer, but to pursue our joy in the Lord, in peace. And he says in the previous section, he says as we do these different things, as we rejoice in the Lord and realize that He's near, and as we pray, And it says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul, in this previous paragraph, is saying the result of this is that the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. It will guard our hearts and minds. The peace of God. And now in this next paragraph, verses 8 and 9, the result is not the peace of God, but the God of peace. So Paul is giving us in this section pathways to peace. Peace. Pathways to peace in a world that is often full of anxiety. He's showing us how to find peace. We're going to talk about how to get there in a moment. We're going to look at the pathways that he's given us here. And in, the, in the verse, he's given us the pathway of our thinking and the pathway of our practice. The pathway of thinking and practice. I think you have notes there aligned that way. If uh, you can read them, our printer was malfunctioning this morning. But the pathway of thinking, the pathway of practice, all leading to peace. God is a God of peace. This is who He is. He's a God who brings His peace. And and the picture of His peace is, is broader than just simply feeling good, though that's part of it. 
He comes to bring peace that will envelop all of creation. Actually, you can go back to the story in Genesis and watch how God actually brings peace. The, the story starts, the Spirit's hovering over the waters. There's, there's disorder, there's some degree of chaos. And what God does in, in creation is He starts creating these forms. He, he creates the, the sky and the sea and the land. He creates and forms these things and He fills them with creatures. Then He sets mankind over creation, Adam and Eve, over that creation, mankind to rule it. And he, he, he creates order. He fills it. He, it's, it's very good. And then on the seventh day, what does he do? He rests. There's peace. There's order. There's blessing. Now, we know the rest of the story. What happens? Sin gets introduced. Chaos comes into the world again. This, this way of living, of, of rebelling against God, turning away from the God of peace, it brings things like anxiety and disorder and, and destruction. And yet, God starts a program of bringing peace back, of, of recreating, of, of bringing peace through His Son, Jesus. He's the God of peace. He's intent on bringing peace. He's intent on bringing peace to your life. He's intent on bringing peace to His creation. And so not only did He he create order and fill it and rest on that seventh day, but He's sent His Son to bring peace, to deal with the issue of the chaos of sin. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 says this about Jesus. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether in, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. God came as a man, Jesus Christ, to live the righteous life, the life of truth, the life of peace that we failed to live. He lived a perfect life. He loved His heavenly Father. The God-man, God the Son, loved His heavenly Father and walked in the power of God the Holy Spirit. He loved others. He served others. He reached out to the lost, to the outcasts. He lived by the truth of God. He lived a righteous life. He earned the right to be king. And then He offered up that righteous life on the cross. He could have lived His righteous life and then just perhaps been received by the Father. But in His kindness, in His mercy, in His wisdom, in His desire for peace, in His plan to rescue His people, He offered up that life and He shed His blood on the cross for you. So that the most important peace for any of us, could be established peace with God. For the wages of sin is death. We are sinners. We are those who embrace the chaos of sin in our own lives. We ultimately choose chaos over peace. We choose our way and rebellion against God over God's way. We would rather have chaos. We would rather have anxiety if we can have life our way than turning our lives over and repenting of our sin and trusting and following God. That's our sad state. And yet Jesus came to rescue us from that. To rescue us from sin. To rescue us from anxiety. 
to come in and provide for forgiveness, to pay the penalty for this sin. The just penalty. The just penalty for sin is to be exiled, alienated from God, to suffer all the consequences of that. That's anxiety. And ultimately, it's eternal anxiety if we choose not to turn and trust in Christ and His blood shed for us. It's eternal anxiety. I cannot promise you a happy future without Christ. And God doesn't want you to have such a future. He sent His Son to shed His blood on the cross for your sin so you could be fully forgiven of all your sin and counted righteous in Christ and welcomed as a son or daughter into God's kingdom. To know Him. To be at peace with Him. To have His holy justice satisfied in Christ so you could be treated as Christ deserves. And so Christ came to bring peace. He came to bring peace to you. And His work of redemption is not finished. He has shed His blood and and His sacrifice and His life was accepted by the Father. The Father showed that by raising Him from the dead in, in a new body, in a new life. That's a promise of what's to come because the, the, the work of peace, the work of redemption is not done. He ascended, but He's coming back. And in the meantime, He's reigning and He's making sure that this message of peace goes out and changes lives and brings as many people as possible into the kingdom, this kingdom of peace. And then He will return and He will bring a new creation. There will be final judgment. Those who have chosen sin and chaos will be banished forever away from peace. But those who have recognized their desperate need for for peace, their desperate need for forgiveness and reconciliation in Christ will find themselves with a new kingdom of peace under Christ to live in. New bodies. A creation without sin, without chaos. So He has come and He has made peace. He is making peace by the blood of the cross. He comes to bring us peace. And to bring us that final Sabbath. That first Sabbath on the seventh day was a picture of the final Sabbath. When God brings recreation and final peace to us. He is a God of peace. And He wants you to know peace in Christ and through Christ. He wants you to live in that peace now knowing that you're forgiven. You are reconciled with God. What can man do to you? What can be done to you if you are at peace with God? If God is for you in Christ, there's nothing. There's nothing that that can take that away from you. There's nothing that could outdo what you have in God. You are forgiven. You are rescued. You belong to Him and you will experience that eternal peace as you trust in Him. There's peace. He's the God of peace. He wants us to know peace. And Paul in this section of Scripture gives us very specific pathways to experience his peace and the God of peace. We get glimpses of peace in this life in so many ways. We see peace. And, and, and I know uh, literature is full of pictures of this peace. These, these pictures, these ideas of peace whether it's in literature or in experience, they capture our hearts. I, I think of different peaceful things in life that I experience when I think of peace. I think of, of beautiful summer mornings. I love to get up and uh, at times when I'm up early in the morning, go out on the porch 
of our house and just experience that early morning peace, the dew on the grass and the promise of a cloudless sky and a day with friends. I love to go up to uh, Jackson, New Hampshire. And, and uh, the village of Jackson is just a beautiful little village surrounded by mountains. And I think of the picture of peace, this, this appeal of the country life, this simple, well-ordered life, living in a village where everyone knows your name and, and you just go about the business of the day, enjoying peace. I think of pictures of like that. I think of pictures in the Scripture of the city of Jerusalem in, in the Psalms as it speaks of this city where the, where the houses are built closely together. They're built and it's this glorious city on a, on a mountain that's there and the houses are close together full of people who love one another and love to worship God and the, the temple mount is there rising above all things. The presence of God and, and His King dwell there. This picture of peace. In the New Jerusalem, I think of local churches at their best moments where the peace and power of the Gospel creates deep love and friendship and shared lives. And, and, and a love that not only touches those in the church but overflows to the community. I think of churches and the power of the Gospel when I think about peace. And I think of the ultimate peace of the new heaven and the new earth. We taste this peace. This peace is for us. It comes from the God of peace. The peace of God, the God of peace go together. And we are to experience it. And Paul wants his friends in Philippi to experience this peace. He wants them to know this peace. This peace is something that is both individual and corporate. Both future and present. Both subjective in our own experience and objective in, in real peace among relationships. Remember he just... a paragraph before all this, he was talking to the church and Yodia and Sintki. Remember? These two women who were in conflict. And the church was in conflict as well. And he wants there to be peace between them and peace in the church. And he calls them to help these women together. That there might be peace. So peace has to do with the corporate. It has to do with the church as a whole. It also has to do with individuals. Verses 4-7, through seven, it's talking about living in this peace. Praying and thanking God and laying your requests at His feet and knowing the peace of God which surpasses all understanding and experience this peace guarding your hearts and your minds from anxiety. So it is corporate. It's personal. It is future. It's present. It's the peace of God. And Paul lays out in verses 8 and 9 how to live in peace. So let's talk about that. First, how to think for the purpose of peace. Paul says in verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul repeats that phrase, these things, twice here. He calls them to think about these things. He calls them to practice these things. So that through thinking and practicing, they might know the God of peace among them. Now, the God of peace is everywhere. He rules over all things. It's not that somehow He's distant and, and by thinking and practicing, he, he, we can uh, kind of get Him to, to be here when He was not here normally. God is everywhere. But when we do not think and practice these ways, we alienate ourselves from the God of peace. We, we 
corrupt our experience of His peace. We know His peace. We know the reality of His presence and peace when we walk in this sort of thinking and this sort of practice. So Paul says here, a bunch of whatevers. He wants us to think about whatever is true, whatever is honorable. This list of things, these six virtues, and then they're summed up with as any excellence or anything worthy of praise. These six virtues would have been virtues that would have been familiar to the Philippians. These were similar to virtues promoted in Greek philosophy. The various schools of philosophy of that day and of today as well recognized the power of thinking correctly. They recognize that as you think, so you are. And actually modern, one of the most popular uh, therapies in psychology right now is called cognitive therapy. And it's based on the same premise. If you think right, you will feel right. You will live right. And the Bible is full of this approach to living. And I could take you other places. To, to know Christ is to have your thinking transformed. We are called to be renewed in our minds and thus be transformed in our lives. Our lifestyle flows from how we think. And we must learn as believers to think rightly. Too many of us, too often, and I include myself here, we are spectators in our thinking. We just let our thoughts go. And we just kind of watch the show and where it takes us. And Paul is saying this is not the way to peace. It is not the way to peace to just let your thoughts go and follow wherever they lead. We must take responsibility to think according to these ways. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this phenomenon of thinking properly and not being a spectator. I think we have this to show on the overhead. He says this, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the late pastor in London, says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged Himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note, defy yourself, and defy other people, and defy the devil and the whole world, and say with this man, I shall yet praise Him. Martin Lloyd-Jones understands the truth of Philippians 4, 8. That we must purpose, purposefully think the right things and not be passive. To train our minds, to fill our minds. It's not so much shutting off the wrong thoughts. It's like saying, don't think about a pink elephant. If I say that, there's no way that you're not going to think of a pink elephant. It's instead thinking of something else. 
actively putting on the thoughts of God, the thoughts after God. And so he gives us this wonderful list of things to think of. First, we are to think about whatever is true. We're to talk to ourselves and think about what is true. And certainly this means the core true, the core truth, that's Jesus Christ himself, the apex of all truth, the originator of all truth, Christ and all of who he is and what he's done. But it also flows into small t truth, all sorts of truth that flows from Christ. Truth in logic, truth in science, truth in culture, truth in action, truth as opposed to falsehood and speculation. All truth is to be the object of our meditations and our speech. We're not to allow falsehood and lies and untruths to fill our minds. We are to think on whatever is true. We are to think on whatever is honorable. Whatever is honorable as well. Sadly, our culture has this drift to think on whatever is vulgar. There's this trend in our culture where, the, where we're more interested in what is jaded and vulgar than what is truly noble and right. We as a culture are growing more and more cynical. Thinking as a cynic is contrary to thinking about what is honorable. Do you guys know the character from The Catcher in the Rye, Holden Caulfield? Has anyone read that book, The Catcher in the Rye? It used to be mandatory high school literature. That was sophomore year for me, American Lit. All sorts of sad books like The Catcher in the Rye. Well, the character in The Catcher in the Rye, Holden Caulfield, he is a cynic. He's a young man. Uh, what is he, high school age, prep school age? And he's a cynic. He, he sees everything as, quote, phony. Life as phony. He's a classic picture of a cynic. And this approach to life is now catching on as a way to live. A way to approach life. To approach life like Holden Caulfield. To look at everything and see what's phony about it. To be a cynic. Paul Miller in his book, The Praying Life, speaks about this phenomenon. He says about this, Optimism in the goodness of people collapses when it confronts the dark side of life. Shattered optimism sets us up for the fall into defeated weariness and eventually cynicism. You'd think it would just leave us less optimistic, but we humans don't do neutral well. We go from seeing the bright side of everything to seeing the dark side of everything. We feel betrayed by life. The movement from naive optimism to cynicism is the new American journey. Cynicism's ironic stance is a weak attempt to maintain a lighthearted equilibrium in a world gone mad. Because cynicism sees what is, quote, really going on, it feels real, authentic. That gives cynicism an elite status since authenticity is one of the last remaining public virtues in our culture. Cynics imagine that they are disinterested observers on a quest for authenticity. They assume they are humble because they offer nothing. In fact, they feel deeply superior because they think they see through everything. C.S. Lewis pointed out that if you see through everything, you eventually see nothing. You cannot go on explaining away forever. You will find that you have explained explanation itself away. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The, the whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. 
But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as to not see. Contrary to this drift towards cynicism, this lifestyle approach, this reaction to broken dreams, disappointments, Paul tells us to think about whatever is honorable. To think about the things that are beautiful and admirable. The apex of that is the cross of Christ. That God would humble Himself. He would humble Himself and and come down and and live as a human. That alone is just amazing. To live as as an unknown, poor human being. But then to offer Himself up on the cross to shed His blood, holy, precious blood of God, the infinitely glorious One, for you. Because He loves you and He wants you to be forgiven and to know Him and be loved and receive and live in His love and give His love. That is honorable. That is something worth thinking about. That is something that should, in its beauty, should transform us from cynics to those full of hope and joy. There are so many things that are honorable to think about. Certainly Christ Himself crucified and risen, the most honorable. But there are so many things around us. I, we just spent a week with this vacation Bible school and, 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 and I think about what is honorable that went on in this past week. What is admirable? The fact that all these people from our church gave all this time to serve children in the name of Christ. That is honorable. The fact that a sister church would give up a week of their time and hundreds of dollars to pay to come up, 25 of them, to just serve us, just help us reach families and touch children's lives. That's honorable. And the list can go on and on. There are lots of things to think about. If you are a cynic, hear the Word of God. Whatever is honorable, think about this. Refuse to allow yourself to live in cynicism. Set your mind on thinking noble thoughts. Thinking about what is admirable and honorable. We ought to think also what is just. The things that are right and good and proper and fair. And certainly the fact that God has come in Christ to rescue us and to set up a kingdom of justice, of goodness, and of rightness. And to bring this kingdom not only at the final place, but even through our lives now that we might be agencies of His justice in this world. We have opportunity around us to think on and promote justice in how we work. One thing that I had thought about years ago before I was called to be a pastor full-time, I was a technical expert in my field and I had learned various skills and, and had different uh, certifications, basically, in my field. And, and I served in research. And I thought, you know what? I, I've been given this stuff. I, I've got to do something with it. I could just kind of remain in my cushy research job. Uh, but I thought, you know what? I, if I have the chance, at some point in my life, my plan was to start a business, to train and employ people in that area of expertise uh, related to corrosion and, and testing, and give jobs to people who might not have jobs Otherwise, now I didn't get to do that. He called me a pastor instead. But there's gifts you guys have. There's callings you guys have. There are ways he calls in your life to 
to bring justice, to bring what's right in the, in the marketplace. Maybe it's starting a business where you can use your gifts and employ people. Maybe it's ways to reach out to the homeless around you, to touch those who are in nursing homes and, and all alone with the love of Christ. Reaching out to the desperate, the broken. Reaching out to your neighbors with the Gospel. We are to think on these sort of things. Fill our minds with this sort of dreaming and, and, and be quick to see around us the justice of God at work. We're to think about what is pure as well. Whatever is pure. Oh, how we need help with this one. Oh, we need help. So much of our lives, so much of our culture is full of the corrupt and the jaded. And we are so drawn to this. We want to see the latest viral video that shows the dark side of life. The latest human interest story that's just a little bit over the line. Yet Paul tells us here to refuse that which is sensational, that which is corrupt, that which is slightly twisted. Instead, to think on that which is pure, without corruption, full of goodness and and faithfulness and truth. Pornography has reached epidemic proportions in our culture. It's everywhere in in the internet Though an instrument for much good is also an instrument for much evil and pornography. It's all around us. And those images are impure. They're twisted pictures of humans. Twisted pictures of humanity. And to enter into seeing those things is to enter into not just, not just a corruption of, of, of things sexual, but a corruption at the very core of humanity. The corruption at the very core of what it means to be a human being and to live in society. It's impurity in a gross way. And, and I, I would submit as well that the tendency towards what's called warnography as well is a similar corruption. Warnography is an a, a interest in gratuitous violence. And the internet's full of that as well. And video games as well. This gratuitous violence. It's corruption. It's jaded. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. There are godly ways to enjoy sex within marriage. And yes, violence is at times a last resort. It does and can have its place as a very last resort. But that's totally different than what our culture does and what we tend to enter into in pornography and pornography. And Paul says, don't do this. Don't live there. Don't let these things capture you. Don't have your appetites for these things fed. Kill this stuff. Think about whatever is pure and right and good. We ought to think about whatever is lovely as well. Whatever is is worthy of love. Christ Himself being the highest example of that. His combination of glory and majesty and humility and kindness. There's, there's nothing more lovely than Christ and all of who He is. And His creation is full of things that are lovely. He is a God who's glorious. And He reveals Himself most completely and fully and gloriously in, in the Gospel, the good news of Christ. But He reveals Himself in creation. And if we just lift our eyes up, we will see many things that are lovely. Many things that are worthy of our attention in creation and in people around us. We are to think about whatever is commendable. Things that that are commendable. Things that are good. 
and capture the noblest tendencies that we would have. Whatever is commendable. When I think about this, it's not an abstract idea for me. I think about the commendable lives that are sitting before me. I think about you guys. I think about lives lived centered on the Gospel. I think of good fruit that flows. I think about love between husband and wife that flows as it's that union is centered on the Gospel. I think of families who are walking in humility and dependence on Christ so that they can love and instruct their children and children who are impacted by that and being raised in the knowledge and lifestyle of the Lord. I think about lives who are given to serve commendable things. This past week, I, I only got to be here one day. I may just sound like a, a dummy here getting emotional about that, but I love being around VBS. I love seeing you guys at work. I love seeing the grace of God and and um, I just got to tour around a little bit on Friday and watch you guys at work, watch you loving kids, watch you doing stuff. And there were so many commendable things. People using their gifts. One example I thought of, and I don't mean to embarrass anybody by this, but I got to go by the craft room and, uh, and just see some of the crafts that were being done. And I, I don't know who all was involved in crafts. I know, I know Melanie Smith and I think Sue Drury and maybe some others that I'm missing. I'm sorry if I didn't see you there. But this little thing is an example of something commendable, of someone's life who's commendable. I would never have thought this up. This is a fiery furnace. And it goes with the story from Daniel, where uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Meshach, Yorshak, and a bungalow, are thrown into the fire. And, and God comes in, into that fire and rescues them. And so it's a visual for the kids. So it's a mason jar. And it's co- coated with uh, cray paper. Is that what they call this? Yellow and red cray- shoe paper. I'm not a craft guy, but I like this. Um, And it's not just coated, though. It's a fiery furnace. So what they did is they cut out these little figures around the edges as well. Maybe you can see us here. And when you put a light on behind it, you see the silhouettes of people. There's a candle that goes in there, but I'm using a flashlight. You see the silhouettes of people. And those are the men in the fiery furnace. That's just genius. It's a genius craft. And, And some kid is going to remember that lesson. And their lives perhaps will be changed by recognizing that God, God rescues us when we call on Him. That's commendable. The lives of those who serve in this way is commendable. And I love to think about such things. Paul calls us to think about what is commendable. These different virtues, we're to think about them. We're to be active and and. and calling upon things to enter our mind and fill our minds. These virtues must be things we set our minds on when we wake up in the morning, that we don't just go on autopilot. I don't know about you, but I do that. I wake up and it takes me about 20 minutes to kind of get the engine going. Um, It's just like an old car that won't start. That's me in the morning. Just my mind is just not very active right away. It takes me a while to wake up. And if I'm not careful, my mind will just be full of thoughts just come in. And my day will be started by these negative things, these untruthful things, these unvirtuous things. And I've learned that I must set my mind on these sort of things. I must actively engage my mind to think about these virtues. What's the result when I do that? Peace. Instead of anxiety about my day, instead of thinking about all that could go wrong in the day, and you know what, if you want to think about all that could go wrong at any given moment, you, you won't ever finish doing that. It's not, it doesn't work. 
It doesn't help at all. There are endless possibilities of things that could go wrong. That's not what's helpful. What's helpful is to think about what's good, true, noble, and right, pure, lovely, admirable. Think about these different things that flow from God and most of all Christ as the ultimate example. And this glorious one has given himself for me. And so as I think about him, it sets me on a course for the day that's entirely different than if I just let thoughts happen to me. So Paul finishes this section here saying, if there is anything, if there is anything excellent or praiseworthy, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's how we get on the practice, uh, the experience of peace. And then next, more briefly, we are to think of these things, we are to practice these things. What sort of things does Paul want us to practice? He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. That what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, he means the content of this letter, but he means more than that. He lived with these guys. They know him. They know his lifestyle. They know not only what he said in terms of proclaiming the gospel and the truth, but all the things that he would have talked about over the course of just living with these people and loving them in Christ's name and teaching them. They know about his life. They've experienced this man up close. They've touched him. They've heard him. They've been around him. They've seen the choices he's made. They know this man. When this man is writing this letter from jail, their hearts go out to him. They love him. And yet they watch him in jail, trust in the Lord, set his sight on the Lord, live around the gospel, and live to love and serve others. This, this man, those sort of statements for them meant a lot. And so Paul is telling them, guys, you, you know me. You've learned and you've received things from me. You've heard and seen me. You've, you've experienced a gospel-centered life in me. You've seen how I've lived. Now practice the same things. Put them into practice. Guys, if we go through the book of Philippians and we don't practice these things, we're not going to know the peace that God has for us. It's not good enough to listen and say, okay, got that. Nice message. We're to practice these things. We're to learn from Paul. We're to follow his example. We're to follow the example of others who follow Paul as well. I can trace my growth as a Christian by the markers of certain individuals who had an influence in my life. And I could take you through my whole life and talk about the different phases of growth, different phases of growing in Christ, and I can tell you who was largely responsible for that, I think, early on in my life. Of Just so grateful for God, for His kindness to bring people. Think of this guy named Joe Bova. He's a young navigator staff worker at UMass. And he took me under his wing as a young believer. And he not only showed me how to study the Bible, he not only told me what was most important in God's Word, he demonstrated what a life lived under the Word in Christ looked like. And I can see him as if he were right here, right now, with his smile and face and his joy. And I can remember Joe, would, we would get together and he would talk about all sorts of things and, and he just had joy and faith and zeal for the Lord and it just overflowed and it, it affected me. I can remember him actually talking about things that would have been mundane otherwise. He, he brought us through um, instruction from the Word on how to handle our finances. And you think, well, I mean, if there's anything to fall asleep in, it, it would be something on finances. And, and I'm sorry if you're an accountant, I don't mean to insult you, but um, 
But I can remember Joe just going through and just bubbling over with how wonderful God's Word is and how wonderful God's promises are. And that life affected me, had a tremendous impact on my life. We are to be that for one another. We are to find people like that to get around, the Joe Bovis. I love to read biographies. I, I love reading these guys that are no longer alive because as I read them, I feel they're like my friend Joe Bova. I might just have an overactive imagination, but I, I picture guys like Jonathan Edwards being there with me as I read their biography, talking to them and hearing from them. These individuals, these historic individuals have had an impact on my life. They are to have an impact on our lives. And they're not just to have an academic impact. They're to, to lead us. They're to, to instruct us so that we would practice the same things, that we would practice those things and experience the same joy and the same wisdom and see the same lifelong fruitfulness many of them saw. We are to practice these things. We are to think these things. That the God of peace may be with us. That the band could come up as we close this morning. Questions in closing. Do you want to experience the wonderful peace that God brings? Do you want to be rescued from anxiety and instability and despair? Do you want to have moments where you're free from anxiety and even days? and even a whole life free from anxiety, living in the peace of God. Well, God's Word gives us the pathways to peace. It says here to think about these things. It says here to practice these things. When we do this, we will experience the nearness of the God of peace. And you will experience moments and days. It will grow. It may not start right away changing everything. But as you practice these things and think these things, you will be affected and there will be a growing peace in your life. You will know freedom from anxiety and the, the nearness of God. So as we close, before we close in song, Let's just take a moment to think about one simple way to respond to God's Word here. Maybe it's just getting up in the morning and not letting your thoughts race, but thinking about Christ. Maybe there's the need to get around someone else who can have an influence on your life and to teach you how to live and how to practice these things. It, it, it could be all sorts of things. I would submit that you like me, at times experience anxiety, so maybe even just think about your latest struggle with anxiety and how thinking about the right things and practicing the right things would change that and then think about what to do next time. Something simple, keep it simple, start simple, and watch it envelop all of life. Let's do that, and then we'll close in song.